Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Our reading today comes from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 is where we'll start. One second. Didn't bring my glasses. From, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then down to verse 23. And, when, and he went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed with demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Okay, I didn't want to forget my glasses. Uh, that was a good reminder. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Elevate, if you would, first and second graders, if you want to go back to the Elevate room, I know there's a couple of Bannons back there waiting for you uh, who would love to see you. And, um, and while they're doing that, nobody stand up from their chairs, but if you want to look up and down the aisle, give a wink, look at somebody in the face, and say, it's really good to see your face. All right? So you can do that. If, if, if a fist bump is appropriate. Man, we can't even do this. All right. Hey. Okay. Hopefully everybody felt just a measure of encouragement and now is done feeling that encouragement and ready to pay attention. Uh, good. Well done. We've like unleashed the beast here. This is good. I, I like having to keep you guys under control. Um, I have really gotten into biographies. I, I, I have uh, really enjoyed, I don't, it's just been over the last several years and um, I enjoy uh, I enjoy reading uh, about the life of new people. I probably I want to read them more than I do, but it's enjoyable to do that uh, and to look at their lives. And when you look at the real life of somebody, you don't just see a quote. Sometimes you can see a quote and you don't know the context. You don't know, uh, or even their life's work sometime. I, a couple weeks ago when I brought up uh, Charles Darwin, and, and Darwin was not set out to like, disprove God's existence or, or against Christianity. He actually was very much against slavery, and that's what drove him to uh, look in the Galapagos Islands as he noticed the difference between finches and saying, you know, that, that really these are all from the same species. And so humans, although he never applied it to humans, there's some other things there, but that was his drive. Uh, and you don't get that when you just read quotes. Uh, some other ones that I thought were funny, on a little lighter note, uh, finding out uh, funny man Steve Martin, 
You guys, if, if, if you're of a certain age, you remember funny man Steve Martin. Uh, and he actually uh, dated, I think possibly even was engaged to, at one point in time, uh, Christian author Stormy O'Martian. You remember her? I, yeah, yeah. The Power of the Praying, fill in the blank. And she had like six books of The Power of the Praying, what, uh, whatever. And yeah, so they were like, I think almost engaged, which is fascinating. Um, and uh, anyway, you learn a lot about people. One of the ones I'm listening to right now is called Fire in My Bones, and it's the biography of Eugene Peterson, uh, who was a Presbyterian pastor who I have such a deep love and respect for. Uh, and here's some fun things about the life of Eugene Peterson. I'm not done with it yet, but I'm already using it because it's, it's just encouraging. Um, he was on a college track team with Gordon Fee. If, if you, Gordon Fee wrote the book, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And so if you're, if you're a theology guy, you probably recognize the name, if you're a theology person, guy or girl, using the universal guy there, you may recognize the name Gordon Fee. It wasn't like a theology club that they were together with. They ran track together, which is weird hearing that. Uh, and then when he moves to New York, he befriends another young man in the church that he goes to, uh, that, that they become kind of fast acquaintances, a young man by the name of Pat Robertson. Uh, now, their lives and their Christian ministries would take stark different turns uh, but he, but Pat Robertson of the 700 Club fame would try to get Eugene Peterson to come and help him start this new TV ministry. And Peterson, I would say wisely, said, no, thank you. Uh, instead, what he did, and this is my favorite story of Eugene Peterson, he went and planted a church in Bel Air, Maryland. Not Bel Air with the Prince, but Bel Air, Maryland. And it was a suburban place. And, and what, the way they set it up was uh, they had a group of overseers that he had to fill out reports um, I think on a monthly basis, he had to fill out these reports to this group of overseers. And they, you know, and, and the first pages were all the important stuff, the stats, how's the budget doing, how many people are coming, what, you know, all that stuff that's taking place. And then in the second group of pages were personal things, what is happening in ministry and what's happening in his life. And he began to just experience severe anxiety and a lot of overwhelmedness. And so he would say these things like, hey, I need help, I need counseling. And he'd write this in the report. Um, I really could use some help. And it became apparent to him that nobody was reaching out or calling him. And it became apparent that he didn't think anybody was actually reading past the first page of the report in this group of overseers. So he decided to get a little creative and test the waters. And so he writes of uh, getting caught up in a counseling session and having an affair and getting busted by a couple of old women in the church, uh, having this affair in the church pews. But that the neighborhood just, they were okay with it. It was a weird neighborhood and they were okay with it and began to be celebrated by the church. And nobody reached out. <laughs> so he went a little bit further and he said, our worship has grown a little bit stagnant and so we want to give it some excitement. And a friend of mine suggested using hallucinogenic drugs. And so we've ordered some hallucinogenic drugs and I'll tell you, this is the most powerful worship experience we've had. And, and how his wife would go and begin to put hallucinogenic drugs into the communion bread. And, and it's really created an experience. And again, nobody reached out. And so at the end of his three years, they, the funding was going to be cut off. They were going to give like his, his blessing is a, to become a church. And then they all sat and they were like, it sounds like things are going well. And he's like, is it? Does it? Have you, have you read past the first page? Uh, yeah. And you still think things are going well. Interesting. A, dark, a, a light 
time in a dark moment for Eugene Peterson was the time on Sunday nights that he and his wife would spend together coming up with the lies that they would put into these reports. And he said it was actually kind of a joyful time of laughter to be able to go, what if we said this? <laughs> Biographies tell us more than just the quotes. They actually show us the life and the humanity and the context and the relationships of a human being. And, and, and nobody, nobody lives up to a quote. Nobody's life is summarized by a quote uh, or even by a number of quotes. Um, and so biographies can really take us into the life. Now, one of the areas of uh, the Apostles' Creed that does not, as we continue our series in the Apostles' Creed, one of the areas that the Apostles' Creed just doesn't dive into as much is actually the biography, the life of Jesus, the actual life. And so last week, we looked broadly at the, at the person of Jesus, that he is both at the nature of Jesus. He is both divine and human. And this week, um, as we continue on of I believe in Jesus Christ, we're going to look more at the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, we're going to start, we're going to look at his humanity, um, and then we're going to look at the message of Jesus, and then we'll finish with the good news of Jesus. So let's jump into the text, the first part of Matthew 4 that we read. Verse 17 says this, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's start at the very beginning of this verse. It says, from that time. From what time? Great question. Glad you asked. Here's what's taking place in the context here. Matthew uh, 3 records the baptism of Jesus. He's baptized by the forerunner, the run crying out in the wilderness, um, John the Baptist. Uh, and then Jesus begins to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, uh, they tell us that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. So he's human. He's not like this superhuman that doesn't need food. He just, just goes. Um, and it's after his time of fasting that Jesus enters the desert where he is tempted by Satan himself. Now, there's a lot of theological truth here in what takes place in the temptation of Jesus. We have kind of a replay of Genesis, uh, a replay of Genesis 3, where he is tempted in all of ways, but this time the second Adam, as Paul calls him, doesn't fail. He, he succeeds. He resists temptation. There's a lot of theological implication here to what Jesus goes through in the desert, but I want to focus on another area that Jesus endures in the temptation. Uh, Hebrews 4.14 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us hold fast. With, so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Have you ever wondered if God gets it? Like if God understands what it is to go through what you go through? Like whether we've said this out loud or not, have you ever just even internally like said, does God even, do you even understand what we're going through? 
Uh, one of the, one of a phenomenal commentary on the book of Hosea uh, talks about, uh, he almost paints the picture of like God being at the kids' table at Thanksgiving, right? Everybody knows the kids' table at Thanksgiving, where the only time, the only time the adult table cares about the kids' table at Thanksgiving is when they're hungry or when they're making trouble, right? And you kind of wonder, does God, is that the only time that God cares about us is when, when, we're, when we've done something wrong or when we're hungry? Uh, and that kind of thought of, if I were God, when I get to the adult table, things are going to be different, right? If I were God, things are going to be different. And then Hosea paints this picture of what it actually is like to be God. As my, as my rabbi friend would say, anthropomorphizes God into the husband of Hosea, who, who marries a woman who deserts him. And at that point in time, we may be going, okay, maybe I wouldn't be so good at being God because he shows incredible mercy and grace. And I don't know that I would. Sometimes, I'll be honest, sometimes I wonder, God, do you understand what it's like here? Uh, one of my favorite, all-time favorite. I'll get choked up a little bit. Uh, the Jesus album by Rich Mullins. He records this in a church little church building just days before he's killed in the car accident. And I think it's his best work. And so you have this kind of hauntingly beautiful uh, song called Hard to Get, uh, where he's recording this in, a, in an old church building on an old cassette recorder. If you want to explain that to young people, younger people, you can. It's like a really old version of an iPhone. Um, and this is, the, this is the questions that he poses in that song, do you who live in heaven hear the prayers of those of us who live on earth? Who are afraid of being left by those we love and who get hardened in the hurt? Do you remember when you lived down here where we all scraped to find the faith to ask for daily bread? Did you forget about us after you had flown away? Well, I memorized every word you said and still I'm so scared I'm holding my breath while you're up there just playing hard to get. And he has another couple verses and then he goes to the bridge and I know you bore our sorrows and I know you feel our pain, and I know it wouldn't hurt any less, even if it could be explained. And I know that I'm only lashing out at the one who loves me most. And after I figured this out, somehow what I really need to know is if you who live in eternity hear the prayers of those of us who live in time. We can't see what's ahead, and we can't get free from what we've left behind. I'm reeling from these voices that, I keep, that keep screaming in my ears, all these words of shame and doubt, blame and regret. I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here to where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. So you've been here all along, I guess. It's just your way, and you're just plain hard to get. To me, one of the most remarkable things about the incarnation is that the God of the universe actually chose to know what it's like to sit in our place to endure everything that we could possibly endure. To be one of his own creation. He is acquainted with all our grief. He knows what it's like to face temptation. He knows what it's like to be ghosted. He knows what it's like to, uh, deeply knows what it's like to feel rejection, to be abandoned, to feel betrayal from even his closest friends. He knows grief. One of the most powerful passages of Scripture is the shortest when his best friend has died and he knows that he can bring him back to life. 
but we still see that Jesus wept. He knows what it is to need rest and time away. He knows about friendship. In fact, some will jokingly say that the greatest miracle that Jesus ever pulled off was to be a single man in his 30s with 12 close friends. He knows what it is to be single. And because of the church, he also knows what it is to be married. I think that's pretty awesome. Now, it's one thing for Jesus to experience all of this and say, well, he's experienced every temptation we've experienced. And if I've done it, then you can do it. And how often is that how we interpret that? But that's not what he says. That's not what the author of Hebrews says. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus has endured all of this. And he's done it on your behalf. So the pressure's on. Approach me with confidence. Come before me with confidence. Not because of how good you are, but because of how good Jesus is. So what we see in the incarnation here, what we see in the life of Jesus, God is not aloof. He's not immune from suffering. He's not immune from pain. C.S. Lewis has a famous quote, I couldn't believe in a God with all the suffering in the world. I couldn't believe in a God who remained up there. But this story is different. This is a God that came down and faced everything that we face. He gets it. He knows what it's like to face all of this. And he did it without sin so that we can come with confidence. So this morning, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, you don't know or fully understand, what does it look like to like swear my allegiance to Jesus? And maybe you're thinking, well, I can't because here's all the reasons I don't qualify. And here's the things that I haven't done and I got to get my stuff together. Jesus entered into our junk and took care of it. So it's not on you to clean up your junk before you can come to him. That's a beautiful invitation. It's not a dare. It's not a challenge. It's not a, if you, if you really believe this, forward this on to 10 other people. This is what Christ has accomplished. To be seen, soothed, safe, and secure in and through the work of Jesus. So that's where, that's that time. Jesus in the temptation. But then he also goes on and he preaches, repent. For the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, those are interchangeable, is at hand. So this is where we get into the message of Jesus. He, he preaches this message about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is here. And by all appearances, what Jesus is claiming, what he believes, is that he is ushering in the kingdom of God. Um, we've kind of been going through this uh, with the men's Bible study. And I'll give just a brief overview this morning. But Jesus announces that this kingdom is here. If you uh, remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about uh, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we talked about the, the Genesis creation narrative, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And what we said in that was it, it is, we have to ask the questions that the text was actually written to answer. So if we're asking, are those literal days or those figurative days, we're asking the wrong question. That's not what Genesis 1 is about. It is a narrative about this structure. And what some scholars would believe is the ancient 
the ancient structure, this is a way that would have been written for the building of a temple. That God gives order and everything is in its place and this is the way a building is built. Uh, and so each day lines up and corresponds with the same way you would build a temple. And then on the seventh day when God rested, that is the vision of a king whose temple is complete and now he sits down on his throne and begins his reign actively. Well, what we see through the Hebrew scriptures is that God ordains, God begins with the reign of the kingdom of God. And what he does is he creates Adam and Eve to be his, uh, this, this is not, these words aren't familiar, so hopefully they make sense. Uh, co-regents um, or, or uh, I got another, co-rulers or vice, viceroys, vice-regents, that they would actually bear the image of God. Viceroys, isn't it? Is, it co is that right? All right. Um, we don't use that word in our, in our, uh, in our world. But um, that they would actually bear the image of God over the earth. And here's the thing, the alternate to all of the other creation narratives, they weren't enslaved by the gods, they weren't bound in servitude, they weren't like, hey, you gotta take care of like, like, all right, slight confession. Like when I tell my sons to mow the lawn, it's not because I am blessing them to do it, it's because I don't want to. And I still mow the lawn. Um, this is not like that. God actually blesses Adam and Eve to bear his image. It's Adam and Eve that then turn this into a curse uh, in their rebellion by saying, you know what? We want to do our own kingdoms. And then that falls apart. And so God, when he reestablishes a kingdom on this earth, uh, he makes a covenant with Moses, which is more like a marriage ceremony. And he makes this covenant with Moses. And he basically, it's, it's, it's not like take two. It's a, it's a demonstration but literally, God is making, in the Ten Commandments, God is making this marriage covenant with Moses that he is going to make this people, like, bear his image again in reestablishing this kingdom on earth. And, and literally, before the marriage ceremony is done, the people have already built a false god, which is, like, uno numero, numero uno, on what not to do. And what that demonstrates is, even kingdoms that are established by God, but they're still kingdoms of man, are not going to make it. They will eventually look more like kingdoms of men, which is what happens to Israel. Um, and so Jesus, and it, it's demonstrated over and over again. Uh, we, we read this earlier in Deuteronomy. Uh, Eric actually nailed a couple of passages this morning that, uh, no, it was in a good way. Uh, Deuteronomy, when he says, you know, be careful because you're going to go into cities that you didn't build. You're going to drink from cisterns that you didn't dig. All of these things that I provided, be careful because you're going to go in there and you're going to think somehow you've earned it. We have these cisterns because we have done it. And we live in these cities because we have done it. And sure enough, that's what happens to the people of God. When they get power, they begin to neglect uh, really bearing the image of God. And they become like the other kingdoms. Um, and so when Jesus comes in, fully man and fully God, he declares and proclaims the kingdom of God that had been distorted in Genesis chapter 3 and that fell apart all the time in the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus is now ushering it in fully. It's going to be established by God himself in the incarnation. 
Um, so to do this, he's going to, we're actually, I, I, the plan right now is uh, next year, starting January, February, we're going to spend a whole lot of time in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But what he does, he gives this extended teaching of what does this kingdom look like? That's the message of Jesus. He starts off with the Beatitudes. This kingdom is not one that's built by uh, the proud uh, it's, or, or the rich. It is one built by the poor in spirit. This kingdom uh, is not one that is for the powerful. It's one that is made by the meek. It's, it's just flip-flop from what we see in every kingdom of man. And then he goes and he starts teaching um, that it's not just about religious rules and following and doing the right thing, but it actually goes deeper than this. And so the whole Sermon on the Mount, he starts to teach uh, the, the ethics of this new kingdom. And it's not just about following external rules, it's, it's about the heart. So for anger, it's not just don't kill anybody. So that maybe, hopefully, maybe, I don't want to presume anything, maybe every one of us in this room could raise our hands to that, right? I haven't killed anybody. Not an axe murderer. But then Jesus goes, well, but like when you hate somebody in your heart, when you've dehumanized them, that counts. And then our, like the Homer Simpson walking back into the hedge, right? Um, so he starts talking about the matter of the heart. It's not a matter of not committing adultery. It's a matter of like, even in your heart, have you lusted after someone? Ugh. And then, shoot, are you ready for this? This one is like the worst. Giving to the poor. What could possibly be wrong about that? We give to the poor. We should do that. That's good. And he goes, yeah. But when you do it for your own personal benefit, you've gotten your reward in full. He, like, pulls that from underneath us. So you leave a giant tip for a waitress and then take a picture of it and post it on Facebook. These are your rewards. Congratulations. So it's not even doing the right things. It's, it's doing right things for the right reasons. And then Jesus begins to tell these parables about how the kingdom works. And it works under the soil. It's not just this outward stuff. It's not like dominating and getting our government in place. It is stuff that takes work in, in the soul and in the heart and the motives of how we do things. And then he starts telling parables uh, that, that we read earlier um, that uh, they should be obvious, right? You have the good, upright, religious person standing next to the lowly traitor tax collector. And when that story starts, we know who the good person is and who the bad person is. And yet, by the time Jesus is done with this parable, all of a sudden we're like, whoa, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. So the religious, so, okay, so the bad guy is now the good guy? The, the bad guy is the one that walks away close to God? One of the accusations um, that Jesus faces is that he affiliates with tax collectors and sinners. That's in his, like, that's one of the accusations at his trial. Jesus, perfectly holy and righteous before God, never sins against God, and yet he seems to spend all of his time and give his attention to the, all the people who are 
abundantly unrighteous and shows them grace and mercy and then calls them to follow him. People who violate not only the outside of all the rules of the, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, but definitely the inside. And he calls them to follow. So that can be confusing, right? Does anybody else get confused by this? Sweet, you guys got it. I'm the one that's, not, uh, that's confused. Follow me. Um, I mean, we could probably get it, but do we really get it? Well, who, okay, who is the kingdom of God for then? How do we live this out? Jesus demonstrates this is a kingdom for sinners, but it's for sinners who would repent, which literally means change your mind or, or ultimately change your allegiance. For anyone who would look at their personal kingdoms, whether it's money, sex, power, however, when someone looks for meaning and purpose and like building their kingdom in something else, Jesus invites them to repent, to turn from that, change your allegiance, and see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of those things and more. And that this is what this distinct people is to look like, this holy people, that we are to be distinct from the world. Now, let me clarify that. When I say that followers of Jesus are to be distinct from the world, I know that I need to clarify that. You may not know that you, I need to clarify that, but I know that I need to clarify that. Uh, what I mean by that is not that we are to be over here as a religious people and at war against those irreligious people. That's not what that means. Um, this is not a religious kingdom against an atheist kingdom. It's not a conservative kingdom against a progressive kingdom. It's not a white kingdom against a non-white kingdom. It's not even a Christian kingdom against a non-Christian kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus, the, the kingdom uh, of God that Jesus proclaims, puts on display and demonstrates a kingdom that is different from both the irreligious and the religious. Religious and irreligious people both have different means by which they avoid following Jesus. These are the works that I do that make me right before God, so I don't need Jesus. Maybe a little booster every now and then. That's the religious side. Irreligious side says, I don't care, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, it's a kingdom that is both about personal holiness and about incredible grace that seeks to follow Jesus in our belief and motive and, and behavior and yet demonstrates radical grace to those who dis differ from us. It's a kingdom that blesses others, even others that are against it, because every person that's a part of this kingdom at one time or another was against it. And so the hope is to receive this reconciliation and, become, and to find joy in this kingdom. The, the most dangerous opponent to this kingdom, it's not a movement, it's not a bad behavior, it's not a political affiliation. The greatest threat to this kingdom is self-sufficiency or self-righteousness. I don't need Jesus, I'm good. Even if we say that by religious means. I've got my sin under control, I've got my quiet times, I do these certain things. I'm a pretty good person. I look, act, vote the right way. I've got all this together. And so now I don't need Jesus as much. He's got time to worry about those other sinners. Right? We've said this before. The goal of the Christian life is never to need Jesus less. 
And so when we see this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, one, what we see is all of those like things that he puts out in the Sermon on the Mount that you've heard it said, but I tell you, those are all the things he's accomplished. So that's exactly where we can stand before him in, in confidence. And when that becomes alive and real, then all of a sudden this kingdom is worth, Jesus is worth forsaking our addictions, forsaking our lesser identities, our coping mechanisms, our fears, our personal freedoms, our power, our power structures, to experience something more. The message of Jesus is that God's kingdom is here, and that one day, it, it is here now, and one day will be complete. And we can get tastes of it now, but one day it will be complete. And so when Jesus, when he proclaims this kingdom, we'll get back to the text and, and, uh, and finish here. Um, he proclaims the good news of the kingdom, and then this is what he does, verse 23. The, the verses in between there are them calling the disciples. In Matthew 4, verse 23, this is what he comes back to. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus both proclaims good news and he heals. Or what we could say is he proclaims through word and he proclaims through deed. Um, Jesus performs a number of miracles. And it's not what we see in the miracles that Jesus performs is not his attempt. Most often, it's not an attempt for him to prove that he's God. If he wanted to prove, I love Tim Keller talks about this. If Jesus wanted to prove he was God, he could have like levitated, you know, guys, watch this. Uh, or like flown around the Sea of Galilee or whatever. There's lots of things he could have done. What Jesus does when he does miracles is he heals sickness, physical, emotional, spiritual pain. Jesus heals that. And what he's saying in that, he's painting for us a picture of what will one day be. The pain of this present world doesn't belong in this future kingdom. That we will be spiritually, those in Christ will be spiritually, emotionally, physically whole. So like in Christ, one day you will be whole. You ever have a conversation and you think it went well, but then you walk away and you regret everything you said? And you're like, oh my gosh, it's going to be held against me. What are they gonna, did, I, did I make sure to clarify that? Sunday afternoon, everyone. <laughs> this is every Sunday afternoon. Um, my wife starts off our conversation with, I said, I always start off our conversation. Aside from being too long, how was it? Um, and uh, one day that won't be there. That pit, that fear of rejection, that temptation, that shame that heaps up on you. One day you will be whole. The pain, I'm, I'm starting to feel this all over the place. The pain in my knees uh, in my elbow, and I went bowling in, over spring break, and I'm, I, are there bowling injuries? Because I am still feeling like something in my left arm, and like one day that will all be, we will be whole. And Jesus' first thing that he does when he announces the kingdom is he begins to say, 
This doesn't have a place there. Sickness, pain, death, anxiety, fear, all of those things. And this is the fuel that can enable us to live now with the hope of that one day. Um, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a... How do we already get... Have I... All right. I'm gonna, this, I think this is important. So I'm going to spend just a minute on it. Followers of Jesus, we live now in the present reality with a hope of a future that one day will wipe out every tear, every pain. As Revelation, uh, this, is, this is the picture of when Christ returns. There is a danger in our world of what we call an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of all things. When we try to implement that future now, the reason I want to address this, because I think it's important, because I think it's dangerous, and I think it falls on both sides of, of the political aisle. On the one side, we have what's called nationalism, Christian nationalism, where we think if we get all of the right political pieces in place and we have a Christian world, that we can, we can almost force a Christian world on everybody. Um, and this idea that uh, it, it Christianizes everything. So we have Christian nation, we have Christian cities, uh, we have Christian school boards. We practice this dominionizing, which is beyond just simple influence. It's beyond a Christian influence. It becomes a, a Christian law. And I want to tell you, this is dangerous. There is a distinction, a great distinction, between what we are willing to die for and what we are willing to kill for. The idea of making cities or counties or school boards. Christians do not have cities or counties or nations, all right? There are certain nations that say we have a rule of law that is based on Christian principles. That's whatever. Christianity does not have a city. We don't have a Jerusalem. We don't have, like, that's not a thing for us. That's the city of man. Um, and that is, that's the issue is we, we have city of man type stuff. And we covered that earlier when we hold... Christian truths with a pagan posture. Following Jesus is not forced. It's, it happens underground. It happens in our motives, not because of laws. The worst days of the church has been when she has had earthly power and forsaken the power of God. On the other hand, there's a progressive side to this. The progressive side is to kind of bring about this utopia now. We have the power and the ability within us. There should not be any suffering. There should be no poverty uh, and, and kind of this, um, if you will, a messianic age. That we have the ability to bring this here and now. It's a multifold issue on, the, on, the, on this side uh, regarding issues like poverty and illness. Everything should be curable. Civic laws can eliminate... Um, Poverty, civic laws should eliminate cultural bias, which is funny because Christians try to pull that off and you can't legislate the heart, whatever side you're on. Um, and, uh, and it carries with it also a notion that we should be able to indulge in, our, in certain appetites now with little restraint, kind of the YOLO thing, which also plays in with, with 
everything, all this other stuff, that we don't live sacrificially now, you live your best life now and indulge in everything you can while also trying to cure everything now. Um, neither of these are new. The second one is just more empowered by capitalism. In other words, it's not just the elitist class that can do it, it's, it's a lot of people that can indulge that progressive view. It's dangerous when we try to manufacture this future kingdom now. For the follower of Jesus, the reason we can live now faithfully, the reason we can forsake uh, temptations or other things, the reason we can live in that now is because of the awareness that one day we will be made whole. Um, I'm going to try it. Okay. Trying to get to the end here. Sorry, this wasn't as long when I practiced it this morning. Um, this enables us to pursue holiness, uh, but also to be radically uh, gracious and merciful. This is not our best life. The best is certainly yet to come. And so Jesus proclaims this in deed, but he also proclaims this in word. The kingdom of God is here. Let me go back just to say, oh, real quick. Um, when Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God is here, we go back to the Old Testament when we see how God establishes the kingdom. Every prophet in the Old Testament gives warning to God's people, you are not living like my people, you are living like the other nations. And they give warning. If you keep doing that, Isaiah gives this warning. If you keep doing that, uh, you will be, which we read this this morning, I will bring an end to that kingdom. Because this is a kingdom that's going to look like me. But every prophet also gives this picture of the one day when, Jesus makes, when, when, when God makes all things new. So Isaiah talks about uh, the wilderness will be glad and the desert will rejoice and bloom like the crocus. And he gives this beautiful picture. Um, Isaiah talks about that Israel will be conquered, that that kingdom will be destroyed and they will be taken into exile. But then in Isaiah 52, he gives this image of this one day. And while they're in exile, this is what Isaiah prophesies, while they're in exile, he gives an image of a messenger riding up to the wall. Messenger in, in ancient days, a messenger would ride from the battlefront to the city and would give an update on the war. The worst thing you could hear, if you're standing guard on the wall, the worst thing you could hear from a messenger is, we lost. And Jesus paints this picture uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah paints this picture in chapter, 30, uh, chapter 52. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together and sing for joy. The image here is from the messenger sent from the front lines, coming to the people, even the people in exile, when they wonder, has God abandoned us? Is God gone? Is the experiment over? And what the messenger comes, if you can imagine standing on the wall, all of the fear, all of the tension, did we win, did we lose? Has God abandoned us? Even in exile, even after the temple has been destroyed, and the messenger rides up and proclaims to the watchman on the wall, our God reigns. Good news, the battle is over. When Jesus walks in to Jerusalem, when he comes on the scene, the good news or the gospel as he translates it is, even here, even now, 
your God reigns. The king is here. The kingdom is here. The battle is over. In the midst of our day, the confusion, manipulation, the abuse by those who call themselves followers of Jesus, the sin and anxiety that gets into our hearts, the temptation toward despair, how beautiful the feet of Jesus who enters into the world proclaiming good news to those who wait on the wall. The battle is over. Your God is still on his throne. To the humble, to the needy, to the tired, rejoice. Your God still reigns. The practice this week, we're going to enter into Holy Week next week, uh, next Sunday. Here's a practice that I want you to rehearse this week. Rehearsing, proclaiming to your own heart, Christ is King. Your God reigns. Not in a humble, arrogant way. Not in a way that puts down other people. In a way that gives humble confidence. Despite what's happening around me, the good and the bad. God is on his throne. So I'll ask you to do this, even if you want to um, put this on your phone. Like do three reminders a day. Do a reminder in the morning, a reminder at lunch, and a reminder uh, at dinner or, or late in the evening. You can even put this text or you can put a song or put something on there. But uh, if you want to put a text on there, put this. Change your allegiance for the kingdom of God is here. Practice your new citizenship. Practice reminding ourselves that Christ is king. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you have loved your people, that you walk in and proclaim to those waiting on the wall, wondering, is God still here, that you have come, you know everything that we endure, uh, and you proclaim to us victory. You are king, you are on your throne. That does not, should not, cannot produce in us self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. It, it, it must produce in us humility and gratitude. So I pray that we would experience that this week. For those that don't know you, whatever stands in the way of that, I pray that you would remove and that they would hear this message. God is on his throne and they would we would consistently, but, but maybe this is for the first time, change our allegiance from my kingdom to your kingdom. Do a work in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.